0: So the moon is getting fuller, the days and nights are passing and uh, here we are again, we're really getting into the middle of the retreat now. Uh, Tomorrow will be kind of halfway and some of you have had uh, your second round of group meetings and I've heard people say how uh, at the beginning of the retreat they were feeling kind of quite restless and the mind was quite busy and now things have become much more calm and peaceful and then other people have shared how the first couple of the days of the retreat they were feeling really peaceful and blissed out and happy and now it's all it's all gone a little haywire you know that the mind has suddenly got much more busy so we've had time to notice that things change, you know. <laughs> and they'll change again. <laughs> and they've probably changed many times in different ways for all of you. So this is how it is. And it's also been really beautiful hearing hearing people's... Uh, experience and insights and i i kind of have this fantasy of one day kicking back and just giving a talk that's just a composite of all the different things i've heard from yogis because um there's so much so much dharma that gets shared in these retreats and sometimes i feel it's a a teacher it's kind of a privilege because we don't have you know three or four teachers we have 90 teachers and uh It always brings a lot of happiness to hear people sharing insights and reflections on Dharma, and uh, this is one of the things when we we've done this the highest the chant on the highest blessings in the morning. You know, one of the lines is uh, hearing often or hearing the Dharma frequently taught and sharing often words of Dharma. This is uh, one of the highest blessings. It brings a lot of joy to the heart. And even the Buddha himself, when he was unwell, he would get his disciples to come and talk to him about the Dharma. He didn't need teaching, but just hearing hearing people reflecting on what's true and what's good, it gladdens and uplifts the mind. So as I was enjoying having my mind gladdened and uplifted last night by Tanisha, I was just thinking, and I often think, as I have to sit up here and deliver them, you know what do, what are Dharma talks and what do they do and uh, two thoughts came to my mind is that um, in a way what we do when we share the Dharma with one another is it, it's like polishing our lenses it's polish, cleaning up the the lenses or cleaning our glasses I'm someone who's worn glasses or contact lenses for 35 years and uh, can't really function without them and just that that sense of needing to keep cleaning the lenses in order to see clearly and uh, that's that's one of the things that we do we uh, we uh, correct or adjust our our vision clean our dharma lenses And then it also feels sometimes like it's a kind of heart massage as well. So, you know, especially I really enjoyed uh, laughing a lot last night and how that, um, you know, that that nourishes the heart. And we kind of need to attend to both these aspects, I think, the... um, the clarification of view and the development of wisdom but also looking after the heart and this so they talk about the the two wings of the bird of the dharma the wing of wisdom and the wing of compassion and that we need to tend to both of those and the subject area of my talk tonight is going to be more on the lens cleaning end of the Spectrum, <laughs> but I hope it will come through with uh, some cardiac massage as well. <laughs> so when we when we clean our lenses, we're we're seeing in accordance with truth, with Dharma. Um, And one of the things that we see, that of course we've been beginning to see, we start to see these three things that the Buddha called the, the three characteristics of conditioned phenomena, which you've probably heard many times before uh, suffering, impermanence, and not self, non self, or rather, in, in order, impermanence, suffering, and non self. And uh, if you told somebody that you're, what you're doing for Thanksgiving is coming to Spirit Rock for a week to contemplate suffering, impermanence and not self, they probably think, what on earth are you, you up to? So they, they sound, you know, to a, a person who's unfamiliar with this, this territory, they sound like really bad news. <laughs> but actually, they're, they're like three keys, three, three keys that open the door to our freedom, the key to freedom and happiness. And so we come on retreat to, uh, to see them and to use them. So uh, Tanissara was talking about Vipassana, the meaning of Vipassana, of clear, clear seeing, investigation, because we're, we're caught in a, in a net she also spoke about Ajahn Chah talking about this being a very a net with a very fine mesh that we're caught in this net of distorted perception because we don't usually want to the mind uh, resists or naturally inclines to uh, see things in a, in a slightly distorted way these distortions of perception, they're known as vipalasas in Pali, where you see things that are not permanent as permanent, and things that are actually uh, suffering as not suffering, and self as as and non-self as as self. So the the job of vipassana, to me, this vi at the front, of pasana passana, is to to look or to see. And, but the vit has a, a for me, a a, a a sort of nuance of seeing through things. So we're seeing we're seeing the net in order to see through it. We're seeing through what's not, in order that the the truth can reveal itself. One of the, the questions that comes up a lot in interviews in different ways and in the, in the hall is it kind of has, it's a question that comes back to one thing, which is, please tell me what to do. <laughs> I, don't if, I don't know if any of you have had that thought in any situation. I certainly get it a lot, especially when things are uncomfortable. And you may be getting a bit wise to the fact that you don't often get a very straight answer from us. (laughs) And if you really start boiling your answers down to one thing, it usually comes back to something like let go. And those of you who've been practicing for a long time you're kind of so familiar with this that you maybe have given up asking a lot of questions. <laughs> yeah, this, is, this is the one teaching, really. So the Buddha said, uh, I teach suffering and the end of suffering. Suffering is uh, related to clinging. This is, the, this is the noble truth of suffering. The origin of suffering is clinging. And freedom comes when we let go of clinging so sometimes you know there's another famous teaching of Ajahn Chah when you let go a little you'll have a little peace if you let go a lot you'll have a lot of peace if you let go completely you'll have complete peace but it's a really difficult thing to do. So this one simple teaching has also expanded itself into, um, there's a protection chant, another of these protection chants which we used to do that invokes all the Buddhas and... uh, all the sanghas of, uh, that, have ever, that have ever been and ever will be through the eons of time, and all the dharmas, and all the dharmas, are, there are 84,000 heaps of dharma teachings you know, that we can invoke as a protection. So, so this letting go, um, <laughs> because we've needed 84,000 heaps of dharma Because we don't see, so we, we, we want to let go but we can't let go if we don't see clearly what it is that we're holding on to or what it is that we're resisting and we don't see clearly how that, how that dynamic is causing us suffering. So this is, this is the whole job of really what we're contemplating when we do this work of contemplation. We're contemplating to see uh, what exactly is it that we're holding on to? What are we pushing away? And that is what enables us to let go. And to see this, we need to look really um, steadily, closely, carefully, with a very steady heart and a steady gaze and this is what we're, we're cultivating with this practice of samadhi. And then we look and we gradually, gradually see these three friends. Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta. Anicca is impermanence, change. So you've all seen this happening in front of your eyes on the retreat. And it's also, um, another another uh, translation is in, indefinable, indefinability, or ungraspability, insubstantiality. And there's so many ways that we see this. And maybe the most evident and the most basic is the body, which is, uh, the body is the first foundation of mindfulness. And I heard a, a, a really nice, um, I thought, I enjoyed contemplation on this um, in, a, in a Dharma talk by Jonathan Faust. And I thought, oh, I'd like to share that. So I, and it was, it was just uh, some, some facts taken from a scientific journal about the nature of the body. And so I thought, oh, well, I, you know, I'd, I'd like to find that. Maybe I can find it online. So I googled the process of change in the body And so many things came I mean, it was like looking for a needle in a haystack because so many things came up that I hadn't even really thought about, that there'd be loads of Wikipedia and scientific articles about change in the body. So things about, you know, how the body maintains its temperature and how it digests food, um, stress-related changes in the body and all the things you'd expect about sickness and ageing and puberty and menopause and da, da, da. and then a whole load of things about what happens to the body when we die and the stages of decomposition of the body which is one of the contemplations you know one of the classic contemplations of the buddha but anyway so i, I couldn't find the article so i went back to the talk and i'm going to sh- share it with you because um I enjoyed hearing it. So you might want to, I'm going to read it, just a few facts about the body. You might want to close your eyes, if you like, and just uh, contemplate your body as I, as I share this. Even letting your mind go to particular areas of the body as I name them. And just sensing uh, how that is. Although most people may think of the body as a fairly permanent structure, most of it is in a state of constant flux as the old cells are discarded and new ones are generated in their place. Each kind of tissue has its own turnover time, depending in part on the workload endured by the cells. So the cell linings in your stomach only last for five days. The red blood cells, bruised and battered after traveling nearly 1,000 miles through the maze of your body's circulatory system, last only 120 days or so on average before being dispatched to their graveyard in the spleen. The epidermis or surface layer of the skin is recycled every two weeks. As for your liver, the detoxifier of all natural plant poisons and drugs that pass through your lips, its life is quite short. An adult human liver probably has a turnover time of 300 to 500 days. Other tissues have lifetimes measured in years but are still far from permanent your entire skeleton is thought to be replaced every 10 years. And about the only part of the body that lasts a lifetime on present evidence seems to be the neurons of the cerebral cortex, the inner lens cell of the eye, and perhaps the muscle cells of the heart. So just take a moment to contemplate this inner world of constant change. And I don't know what it does for you when you you contemplate that. Because personally, I find that actually quite calming and in some ways um, quite wonderful. But if we think it should be otherwise, then maybe it's a bit scary. But probably the chances are because you accepted this is how it is and how it's meant to be it's even quite a, a, a relaxing thing to contemplate. And then if you, if you were to just now again go inside and just watch your breath for a few cycles. So as you watch the movement of your breath, can you find any moment in which it's not changing? Is there any aspect of it that stays completely still? So you could try to control the breath by stopping it but you can't sustain that or you could dislike the breath because it's constantly changing but the chances are that you're quite cool with the fact that the breath is constantly changing and as you watch it and perhaps uh, find that calming or relaxing, you could also sort of notice that um, the breath can be constantly changing, but the mind, there can be a steadiness in the awareness or the observing mind. So you can see the, um, simultaneously the changing phenomena and also the quality of calm in the observing mind. And uh, what enables the mind to be calm with all this is that you're constantly relaxing back into the flow of experience. You're letting the breath go. You're not trying to hold on to it. So this is partly, I'm saying this to point out that letting go is quite normal. It's something that we're doing all the time. You know, um, it's, not, it's not difficult in many situations. We we all let go of things in order to be here. And some of them some of them maybe required a little bit of negotiation and so on. But there are many things that we let go of just without giving it a second thought. Um, and I think this is this is, you know, why we kind of think of we're doing mindfulness of breathing and we kind of hold on to the breath as a meditation object but why do we hold on to the breath we hold on to the breath because it's actually teaching us to let go in order to be with the breath you have to you have to keep letting go of other things Uh, so it's really an exercise in letting go and then in order to be with this breath i have to let go of the breath that went before Uh, so um we're training this capacity to let go and we use the breath to connect with the present moment and then you notice that the present moment is a really interesting thing because where exactly is the present moment I I studied Latin when I was at at university and so I'm really kind of a bit of a, I like to delve into the origins of these words so present comes from the latin of pride before in front of and sends the senses so it's that which is moving in front of the senses and moment of course that has that it's the word to move like momentum so this thing that we call the present moment that we think of something that's still in the present is actually a moving before the senses And the, the Pali word for present, I think, is, is pachupana. And I think that means uh, what's arising right now. So, again, there's a sense of movement in it. And the word for things as they are is actually uh, yatabhuta, is things as they have come to be. So, again, it's you know, there's this sense of things are changing, things are moving. And yeah. so the only thing that gets kind of stuck and solidified really is our is our thoughts that's what we can try to hold on to but even that doesn't doesn't work eventually so this is this is the nature of anicca or change and then trouble just comes when we expect it demand or think that it should be otherwise or we, we, you know, we we want things to change, and we we kind of think they won't. So we we start grappling with them and fixing them in that way. So I you know, I'm very aware in my life of the process of aging, and uh, you know, seeing I I sort of feel like I'm a 25 year old, and then I look in the mirror and get a nasty shock <laughs> of a morning, and. Uh, Seeing my nieces growing up, and we, we kind of, and we in our in our culture and our society, we invest so much um, stress and uh, money and suffering into trying to um, slow down, hide, um, conceal this this fact of aging. So this morning we chanted the the five recollections, which we we remembered almost on a daily basis in the monastery, to remind us that aging is normal, Uh, change in the body is normal, it's normal normal to get sick. All of us are going to die, that's the inevitable uh, thing of having been born. And we don't do that to uh, depress ourselves or to take the joy out of life, but to kind of prevent, prevent a car crash, of uh, running up against um, the suffering, the suffering that comes from having unrealistic expectations about things. So it's, a, it's cleaning, cleaning our windscreens. By reminding ourselves this is how it is just like there was a, a kind yogi who cleaned our windscreen last night when we were driving down to the teachers accommodation in the in the golf cart and it was all steamed up and we were in danger of crashing into the gate <laughs> <laughs> somebody rescued us so this is this is how we use these contemplations to clean our windscreens <laughs> So that's just a few reflections on this vast topic of impermanence, and then the second one is what happens when we we fight impermanence, and this is dukkha. So I guess you've all seen change on this retreat. Is there anyone who hasn't seen any dukkha? <laughs> mm. Yeah. So dukkha uh, suffering is normal. We all experience it. And yet, how often do we uh, feel that our suffering in some way is a sign of personal failure? Uh, we kind of given this message that uh, in order to be a, a successful human being, we're supposed to somehow succeed in being happy all the time. So it's really helpful to reflect that this is this is normal you know and if you think that you shouldn't be suffering then this is delusion operating so again we feel as in the the Mangala Sutta the highest blessings you know they you might have noticed that they kind of get into a crescendo they they accumulate from uh, getting into more and more profound levels of happiness and the very last one is seeing the noble truths, seeing dukkha. This is the highest happiness. Because to really see and understand suffering, that is the key to our freedom. So Thich says, without the mud, there's no lotus. And it's the beginning in, in some of these uh, lists of evolution of the practice, seeing suffering is the beginning of the path. So sometimes it's also um, translated as unsatisfactoriness or, or stress and of course that's good because it speaks to the whole spectrum of, of experience of unsatisfactoriness but I think there's also a resistance sometimes to actually name it as suffering if we talk about suffering what does that do? I think sometimes we're afraid to to meet it and to stop and be still with it what is our our normal response to suffering often we meet it we meet it with a hindrance we meet it with aversion with desire or we zone out we bury our head in the sand we run away we blame try to find what's What's wrong? Who can I blame? What can I blame for this? Or we distract ourselves, or we resort to kind of self-deprecation, so we start blaming ourselves. And Tanissara spoke about these the arrows, how um, this image of the suffering, initial suffering, being like being struck by one arrow, and then we shoot more and more arrows so for example if I have a pain in my knee you know, I start thinking mm, oh it's getting worse I know it's going to be really bad uh, I'm not going to be able to do the qigong I'm not going to be able to do the walking meditation but if I can't walk and I can't move I won't be able to sit either it's going to be so uncomfortable um, maybe I'm going to need surgery <laughs> and if I can't sit and walk I'll never get this meditation thing and then also I'm just you know I'm not going to do any exercise I'm going to get really fat and really unhealthy and then I'll be really depressed and you know we pile it on and on and on and on it's like we're shooting ourselves with more and more arrows so one, one teacher has a formula that I think is really great, which is uh, suffer, suffering equals pain times resistance. <laughs> uh, the amount we resist it determines how much we suffer. And what I really like in that formula is, if you remember your, your maths, what happens when you stop resisting and you put a zero in that part of the equation, suffering equals pain times resistance. Yeah. So we can, we can, not saying that you, know, you have to believe that, but we can test that in our experience. Yeah. It's a possibility. So I've been using the example of the, the body, but it, it applies to everything. It's not just the suffering of the body so the mind fixates on what it wants to get rid of. Like we, we fix people who we've had a hurt, hurtful interaction with. I find myself in my mind arguing with somebody who's a distant memory. Yeah? <laughs> I don't know. Mate, you might have been doing that on the retreat even. I know I, I've brought people to argue with on retreat in the <laughs> past. <laughs> yeah? And then if you apply mindfulness to that, what's really happening? You know, We're arguing with an idea in our mind, a picture in our mind, and uh, it hurts. You know, so mindfulness is clear seeing. It asks us to see what's actually here. So these are, these are the, the illusions that we have to let go of. But also, you can't let go of something unless you've actually picked it up. So if we're resisting something and refusing to pick it up when it's kind of landing in our lap, we can't really let go of it. It's like you, you, you have to um, touch something before you can let it go. So uh, also, the, you know, the fact that things change take some of the fear out of touching it because we, we don't want to touch it because we think then it's never, it's never going to change and it's going to be there forever. But actually, as we touch things, they're, they're already changing. So there's not very much that we have to fix just to see and to recognize that um, the common humanity of, of this is a really... Um, it's a really healing thing to do. And to, to meet this suffering, which is a noble suffering, it's one of the noble truths, with uh, reverence and compassion, with respect. And compassion isn't something that we have to make arise. Compassion arises when we put down the resistance. So we're not, we're not fixing our problems and we're not solving them. We're just allowing them to dissolve, to follow this uh, natural law of change. And when we get stuck in resisting them, it's like we've, we've frozen. We're not fully alive. So this practice is about embracing what's not alive in us and, and letting it melt back into life. So to my little definition of vipassana as seeing through, I'd say, I I like to add that it's seeing with respect and with love. Uh, um, It's a seeing that melts what's stuck. And then the third of these three characteristics... You have to have a list. We have to give you at least one list every evening. It's uh, anatta, or not-self, non-self. So someone asked in the hall, who am I? How do you use mindfulness to answer the question, who am I? And we hear this this teaching of anatta, non-self. And it doesn't mean that you don't exist. It means that um, the self that you take to be solid and unchanging doesn't exist. And nor do we own it and nor do we control it. So when I was googling my body facts, a few more facts about the not-self nature of your body... So, as you probably all know, you are between, I think, fifty and seventy-five percent water. And then I was really shocked to find that there are ten times more non-human cells in your body than human cells. So there are ten times more bacteria in your body than human cells. And you think, how can that be? Otherwise, you know, I, I, we'd we'd look like a walking mass of bacteria (laughs) but apparently bacteria cells are much 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 smaller than human cells (laughs) so and then the cells that comprise us are made up of atoms and most of the atom is space so the size of the atomic nucleus compared to the whole atom is similar to the size of a grain of rice that's placed in a football stadium. So applied to our own body, if all the nuclei in the body could be placed side by side, the area would occupy. they would occupy would be merely a speck of dust. The rest is empty space. <laughs> Just to blow your mind so we can contemplate and this is a, this is again is a time on a contemplation is to contemplate oneself as as water as space as earth um, we have so much trouble because we see ourselves as separate from the earth separate from the environment separate from the ecosystem and look what that's that's doing to our planet so i really like this this reflection from tiknat han about our relationship to Mother Earth. Mother Earth is not just below us, under our feet. Mother Earth is inside of us. To think that Mother Earth is only the environment outside of us is wrong. Mother Earth is inside us. We don't need to die to go back to the Earth. We are already inside Mother Earth. And again, these kind of contemplations are, I find, actually very um, calming. So there's so many different ways uh, to experience ourselves. Which one is the real us? You know, how many passing mind states have we each gone through in the last few days? How many stories? Who would you be without your cell phone your name so some of you might have had the experience of changing names at different stages in your life you know for me I I became a nun and I got a new name so my name was Karan and then I became Jaya Mangala and then I stopped being a nun and kind of dropped the mangala bit and being Jaya and each time you, you kind of you find yourself growing into a new name and then actually kind of struggling to leave it behind and uh, and then we 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 are different people when we maybe when you're mom or dad you know or when you're mr and mrs so and so or yogi so and so we we become different people who would you be without your to-do list Your fears, who would you be without your health to whatever extent you have it now? Who would you be, in short, without your story? And who are you right now in this moment, in each moment of your meditation? So this changes, we, we find ourselves with reference to things but what's there all the time? So this isn't to, um, you know, we don't have to figure out Anata or try to see it. It's just uh, a challenge to see what's not. You know, where are we holding on to an identity beyond where it's, where it's serving us or where it's useful? We can, we can see how our sense of self is, gets... Um, Is bound up with a sense of suffering, Mm. Uh, particularly when the sense of self is very strong. Um, We 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 get locked into situations, conflicts, or self consciousness in ways that uh, cause us cause us. (laughs) Deep discomfort. And then we can grasp the idea that okay, the thing I need to do is to free myself from from the experience of self. It's like we so we have a, a concept that I, I want to realise non self, to stop being a separate self. Yeah. So we can we can get quite of we can start to notice this process of selfing and then as practitioners get quite aversive towards it. But one of the things we're invited to do with uh, understanding not self, and I I spoke before about how it's really helpful in practice to see everything that's arising as arising due to causes and conditions and as a natural process. So even this process of manifesting as a self is a is an impersonal process in nature. So Einstein said, a human being is part of a whole called by us the universe a part limited in time and space he experiences himself she experiences herself his thoughts and feelings as something separated from the rest this is a kind of optical delusion of consciousness so it, it's normal this is just how, how we're wired up <coughs> So how to practice with that one? Uh, a friend of mine shared, we were sort of talking about, well, how, how, does, how does reflecting on contemplating Anatta you know, manifest for us in our practice? And this friend is a, is a teacher and he's also got two uh, very young children. And he was saying that the way that he, he practices around Anatta is to see how, almost like a, a game with himself, to see how easily... Uh, he can move between the different manifestations of his self that life is calling forth from him. You know, can he can he move easily into being a, a father of young children and stepping out into that into teaching or doing what he needs to do? And I thought that's a really a beautiful way to practice, to be um, practicing this ability to let go of different manifestations of self when they're no longer needed so that the self that's arising is responsive to what's happening in the moment. So rather than trying to get rid of self, you know, seeing where am I holding on to it in a way that's causing suffering? Can I, I dance with it? Because um, as, as we were sharing in relation to restlessness, you know, restlessness is one of the very last things to go in this unfolding of the path. Um, and along with restlessness so this doesn't disappear until we've totally uprooted any tendency to aversion any tendency to uh, craving and along with restlessness the other last thing to disappear is this sense of being a separate self so for most of us it's probably going to be with us for a while yeah so, for me personally, my practice is, is to to reflect on, to contemplate, to notice uh, the not the instability of this sense of self. It's conditioned nature, but also I practice and I and I teach um, self compassion, mindful self compassion, because as long as the self is arising, you know, how are we going to meet it? The self is uh, the self inevitably brings suffering with it. And so I think um, this practice of self-compassion is really is a really critical and um, valuable part of this practice to me. Rather than uh, being too hasty to dismiss, because we say, oh, this is just an illusion. So we dismiss the sense of self. We need to meet it with, um, with care. So that's a very short um, few reflections on these three characteristics. And as I said, there's only only one teaching. Let go. (laughs) But you can't let go of something if you're still resisting it and you can't let go of it if you haven't seen that it's there. You can't get let go of something you don't know. You're resisting. You can't let go of something you don't know. You're holding on to. And when we're suffering, we want a technique to fix the problem to make it go away. Yeah. So our practice here is to remember that uh, the Buddha's path is is different. So uh, Joseph Goldstein sums up the practice sometimes as to keep calmly knowing change, which I really, I really like. So we're doing this, we're building our, our capacity to tolerate difficulty, which you've all been working really diligently at here. We're building our, our ability to tolerate difficulty long enough to see clearly And then Vipassana is just looking through this net of distorted perception and looking carefully until we realize that actually there isn't anything there anyway to hold on to. And then the mind will see that the, the only thing that we really need to let go of is the holding on itself. That's all. <laughs> so Nisargadatta, the, the great Indian saint that Tanisha mentioned last night, he said the real world is beyond the mind's ken we see it through the net of our desires divided into pleasure and pain right and wrong, inner and outer to see the universe as it is you must step beyond the net. It isn't hard to do, for the net is full of holes. (laughs) So may we all step through. So let's just sit for a minute or two. Thank you for your attention and thank you for your practice. We have half an hour for some walking, if you're up for that, and then can meet again here for our final sit of the evening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.